Well, good morning, sanctuary. Christ is risen. One of my favorite people in the world is, believe it or not, my mother-in-law. And her name is Gail. And something that Gail is incredibly keenly aware of is where people sit. If um, you know much about me, you know I'm actually, I'm actually pretty introverted. Um, I'm not much of an extrovert. And along with being introverted, I'm also an Enneagram 9. And so for those of you who know what that means, it means I'm a peacemaker. I don't like to create conflict. I don't like to do things that might put people in a position of conflict or having to engage in conflict. I like to keep things pretty, pretty calm. And so one of the points of a lot of anxiety for me is showing up, whether it's at a house or at a restaurant, and having to figure out where to sit. Because of course, like we all want to be in the middle seat, right? Like we all want to gravitate toward the middle of the table, the middle of the group, because it puts us in the conversation. We get to see what's going on. We get to hear all of the different things that are being said and take part in the conversation. It's easy to sit in the middle, unless you're someone who doesn't like to fight for the middle seat like myself. In which case, you typically find yourself at the end of the table, and you know that the end of the tables are usually reserved for the children, for the people who are a little more introverted and a little awkward, who can make things a little uncomfortable when you have to start pressing into a conversation. That's usually my seat. Yesterday, we uh, went out to lunch with my in-laws, and we also went with some friends, and because the Painos are who they are, we were the last ones to show up. And I knew walking into the restaurant, like there's four of them already here, there's five of us walking in right now. But I had some relief to my anxiety, knowing that Gail is here. And Gail's gonna play musical chairs, and Gail's going to put everyone where they need to be. Gail is the person who refuses to let me sit at the end of the table because she knows I'm fine, this is great, you guys do what you need to do, I'll just go down here, I'll feed my baby uh, the, the french fries that she needs to eat right now. <laughs> what Jesus is doing for us today is not showing us like social niceties. He's not giving us a kind of hack for, hey, if you really want a good seat, this is what you should do. That's not what Jesus is, is up to. This isn't advice for dinner parties. What Jesus is doing, remember, it says that he's telling them a parable. So of course, when we talk about parables, what we understand is that the thing is not really the thing. That what Jesus is telling us is that this thing is not really about this thing, it's about this other thing that's going on. This other thing that you might not really be thinking about. This is what it's really about. This is not about getting the seat that you want. This is not about how you get honor in, in these kinds of exchanges. This is about something else. Remember, these Pharisees are, are watching Jesus closely, the text says. And to be sure, the reason that they're watching Jesus closely 
is that if you've been paying attention for the last few weeks, you know that what he has been doing is going around on the Sabbath day doing a bunch of things that you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath day. Jesus is going around breaking the rules over and over and over again. And so finally, these Pharisees are watching him closely because they want to make sure that he's not going to break any more rules. And of course, they don't want him to break the rules because here's this person who's claiming to speak for God, who's obviously doing things that are exampling the power of God in his life. But they think they've got life with God all figured out already. They think we've already figured out what life with God is like because we are the people of God and we just need to kind of maintain this homeostasis. We need to just keep everything as it is, make sure nobody's breaking the rules because we have it all figured out. Jesus shows us that he's not really interested in keeping everything all figured out all the time. <laughs> Jesus goes around and he has the, the worst table manners of anybody that you can imagine. Now, when we think about sharing meals like this, when we, when we think about how they would have organized themselves, this isn't just coming and sitting down at a table like we imagine or what we experience. The, the way that they would organize themselves is kind of this, this box-shaped U, if you can imagine this. And they, they're not eating at like elevated tables and chairs. They're sitting much more closely to the ground. And they're, they're sitting in what's called a, I know you want to know all of this, a triclinium. Everybody say triclinium. And what this means is they basically have these like, like these chase lounges right, organized in this like U-shaped situation so that the, the place of honor, the place that everybody wanted to go to, everybody wanted to be, was at the base of this U. And then of course, this person would have one on their left and one on their right, and these people, again, because they're close to the ground, they're not sitting, they're not sitting in chairs, they're actually like, like laying down. They're doing something like this, so that if you're in the middle, the food's in front of you, you have the best view, you can hear all the conversations that are happening, but you've also got like this guy over here who's, who's at the same time like laying on you, right? And also at the same time, this gentleman who would also be laying on you. That's not the seat the Enneagram 9 is trying to fight for. <laughs> but this is how their world worked. And Jesus comes along and says, ah, I'm not really interested in that seat. Jesus and I relate in that way. I'm not really interested in that. And not only am I not interested in that, I'm not really interested in sitting down with all the right people, all the people that you think should be invited. Think about the people that Jesus shares meals with. It's the tax collectors. It's the sinners. It's the, the people that you shouldn't be sitting down with. And Jesus seems to be saying that he's not interested in avoiding embarrassment. Jesus does a terrible job of not being embarrassed. But what he shows us is that there really is nothing and no one to be embarrassed by. Jesus, again, had notoriously bad table manners. And when he gets pressed on this, 
Remember what he says earlier in Luke's gospel. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners into repentance. Now, contextually, we've heard this as Jesus saying, listen, you guys are the people of God. You've got this all figured out. I need to go to these people. What he's really saying is you think you're healthy, but you don't have any idea what health actually looks like. He's saying, you guys are the, you Pharisees are the ones who walk into a doctor's office and you have like a piece of metal sticking out of your leg. And the doctor says, are you okay? And you go, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, well, um, you don't look fine. Is it, can I help you? He goes, no, 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 I've got this all. And you know what, I'm, I'm actually something of a doctor myself. I, I can take care of this. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I, I didn't come for the people who feel like they have it all figured out. I came for the people who are under this illusion that they know what health actually looks like for their lives. The people who are so sure and so certain that they've understood what life with God as the people of God actually requires of them. He's saying, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick, but you have to acknowledge that you're sick in order for health to take place. So at this banquet, the Pharisees believe they've arrived, right? And what Jesus is trying to press into them is that healing begins with the humility to realize your brokenness. This is something we don't talk about much, and maybe I don't have time to talk about it much today. But this is why the, the sacrament of confession is so important. We, uh, we have a, a group of people that right now are going through confirmation. This is something that we've been running at Sanctuary for a number of years now. One of the best things that we do, in my opinion. And in these conversations, we talk about the sacrament of confession. And I always open and say, who of you have actually gone to confession? And of course, maybe one person will raise their hand, but most of the time, nobody. Nobody's gone to confession. And I say, well, actually, week after week, after week, you're all going to confession. We all stand together before we come to the table and we say corporately, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed by what we've done, by what we've left undone. And that matters, that's important. It's a way of naming those parts and those moments of our lives and our weeks when we've not lived up to what God has imagined for us and we need to name it. But let me say this, there may come a time in your life when you get stuck. There may come a time in your life when what you really need is to be able to sit down with another warm human body and to confess the worst of the things that you've done. Just to name them, just to speak them. Psychologically, what happens for us is as we hold these things in our bodies, we have to speak them out loud just to create room for something else inside of us. And that thing that we're creating room for is God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. But it's hard for those things to creep into those spaces so long as we keep them all bottled up, so long as we keep those things inside of ourselves. And so let me say this. You can call me if you want to go to confession. <laughs> I know you're not going to. Um, 
that's okay, but we have to put the invitation out there. We have to press into the humility that we don't have all the things as figured out as we think we do. Because that's how the broken parts of our lives actually get put back together. And that's how the brokenness of other people's lives starts to create space for us, that that brokenness gets invited in so that that brokenness can be healed as well. Part of the Pharisees' job in this moment, what they're trying to do by watching Jesus closely is they're trying to keep all of the corrupting influences at bay. They'd they'd found themselves at the head of the triclinium with some guy resting on their shoulders. And meanwhile, those who thought they had missed it, those who'd been told they'd missed it, those who'd been told they're worthless, that they don't belong here, those are the ones who look around and they find Jesus sitting next to them. When we come here week after week after week and we come and we worship, the most important person that you see at church on Sunday, they're not your friends, the most important person you see today is not myself or Bishop Ed. The most important person that you'll see today is that person that you don't know. That most important person that you'll see today is that person sitting by themselves. Because when we come together as the people of God, what we have to say, what we have to say out loud, what we have to say with our posture, what we have to say in our worship, what we have to say as the community of faith is that you are welcome. You are welcome. And we can't take this posture of we have it all figured out and you just need to get on board. We want to be a community. The language that we've started to, to couch around, the kind of community that we want to be, is a, a community of unqualified welcome. Unqualified welcome. Which means you don't have to do anything right before you are welcome here. This is the idea that we don't love God so that God will love us. We acknowledge that God loves us and we respond with love. We sang that in a song this morning. Now I get to love you in return. Why? Because God has already loved us first. And because God loves us first, welcoming us into the life of God, we need to be a community that welcomes people in before they ever do anything right. Because that's how we're healed. That's how brokenness gets mended. We can welcome without qualification. We can be a community of unqualified welcome, a people of hospitality, because more people at the table isn't a threat to our seat. Inviting more people in doesn't put us at danger of losing our place. We can actually, as the people of God, give up our place in place of others. And we can do that because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. We can do that because Christ gives up his place and then takes on our humanity in order to make a place for us in the Father. Remember, he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. 
And that place is in the life of God the Father. And that place is only made possible because Christ first came to us. There's no threat here. There's no danger of us being a community that welcomes with unqualified welcome. We're not at risk. We can give up our place. And it's not, it's not a humiliation for us. It wasn't a humiliation for Jesus to come and take on our flesh and our blood. He humbled himself, but it was not humiliating for him to become like us. And in the same way, it may be humbling, but it won't be a humiliation. It won't be an embarrassment. Again, there's nothing in no one to be embarrassed by so long as we're not trying to protect ourselves. Again, this, this isn't about working the scales. This isn't about gaming the system in some way. This is about a new reality for us, living in a new kind of world, the kind of world that Jesus makes possible for us. It's a, it's a reality that exposes all of our competition, all of our striving, and how meaninglessness, the meaninglessness of our competitiveness, of our striving, of our trying to gain something that's already been given to us. If uh, the last line of this gospel sounds familiar, where Jesus tells us that those who try to honor themselves will actually be humbled, those who refuse to exalt themselves will be exalted. We hear echoes of this throughout the gospels that the first will be last and the last will be first. But again, this isn't a manipulating of the system. We're not trying to game what's going on here. We're not given some kind of secret to living so that actually if we come back here and we pretend like we're in last place, we know that God's gonna come along one day and actually put us in first place. That's a, a, a faux kind of humility. What we are meant to see is that whether we're first or whether we're last, remember the Lord's words in Revelation 1 that I am the alpha and the omega. I am the first and I am the last. So that no matter if you find yourself in first or you find yourself in last, you are all one in Christ. That's the point. It's not that we need to try to pretend like we're one thing knowing that God is gonna make us something else. It's that we can be confident in who we are knowing that we have a place in Christ and because that place is secure, we can offer up that place to someone else. We can scoot down a chair and it's not a threat to us. So we show up in community like this. We show up on Sundays and we're not coming with a sense of competitiveness. We don't have to fight for a seat. We don't have to try to get to the table first because we're welcome. And because we don't have to show up with competition, it means that we can actually show up with curiosity. What is God doing in people's lives? We can be curious about how the Spirit is at work and how the Spirit is present 
rather than wondering, is God at work in their life? Is the Spirit working in them? Because God is the Alpha and the Omega. And somehow, God is making room for them in Christ's life too. Our Old Testament text today comes out of Jeremiah chapter 2. A kind of scathing passage. But it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? It's a way of saying you become what you worship. That if you worship money, you're going to become like money. You're going to just think in terms of the economy. You're going to worship the bottom line. These things that eventually are just meaningless, meaningless. Vapor, vapor as the teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes. And then there's this fascinating line. They did not say, where is the Lord? This gets repeated through the text of Jeremiah, that the priests did not say, where is the Lord? And it comes to the end of this passage and it says, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. They did not say, where is the Lord? That's the accusation against the people of God, that they refused to ask the question, where is the Lord? A couple nights ago, I'm putting my son Rowan to bed, and it's not as easy of a task as it sounds. But I finally get him asleep. He's in a good spot. And usually I'll, I'll leave Rowan's room and I'll go to his older sister's room, go to Nora's room, kiss her goodnight, tuck her in. And I went in and it's dark. And I go over to her bed and I, I go to put my hands on her and I just go all the way to the bed. So I kind of back up and again, it's still kind of dark and I take my, my phone out and I turn the flashlight on and her bed's empty. So of course, I go walking through the house where's Nora and she's not in, in her bed she's, she hasn't creeped into her brother's room again she, I go to, to my room she's not in my bed she, she, in my closet I go downstairs maybe she got a drink of water she's not downstairs she's not on the couch she's not in my, in my big chair that I read in <laughs> where is Nora <laughs> is the question and then my phone rings and it's my wife and I answer it. She said, hey, I had to take her over to urgent care real quick. We had a little bit of an emergency. Oh, okay. So I stopped looking for Nora. She's fine, by the way. I stopped looking for Nora. Why did I stop asking the question, where is Nora? Because she was found. I knew where she was. I knew what she was up to. I knew she was safe. I knew she wasn't hiding somewhere. But here's the thing. The accusation that God brings against God's people is that you've stopped asking, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? Which is a way of saying, you've become so certain that you know where the Lord is. You've lost your curiosity. And instead, 
You've abandoned the source of living water, the spring of living water, and instead you've dug out cisterns for yourselves. If you don't know what a cistern is, it's just this big place to hold water. It's, it's a pool, essentially. But in order to fill the cistern, you actually have to take the fresh water and bring it to the cistern and fill it. And then what's it do? It just sits there. And then you can use it. You can resource it as you need to. You can pull from it when you need to clean. Or you can pull from it when you need to cook or when you need to wash something. And what God is saying to the people of God is that you've abandoned the spring. You've abandoned the source of living water, this kind of wild, untamable, fully accessible source of your life. And instead, you've opted to make life with God useful in some way. That somehow you've, you've tried to contain your life with God so that you can make of your life what you want by resourcing God, by pulling on God when you need to pull on God, by depending on God when you need to depend on God, and by creating the walls of the cistern, you also contain who has access. And God is saying that kind of living, cistern living, this, this kind of living that's so sure, that's so certain, it's actually cracked. It actually can't hold what you want it to hold and do for you what you want it to do for you. You have to return to the living water. You have to return back to the spring that is unpredictable, that's gonna flow where it pleases, that anybody can just walk up to and have access. Life with God is not useful for us. We want life to be neater than that. We want life to be a little more predictable. That's why the cisterns are attractive. That's why we think that that's what we want for our lives, to have the right kind of rules and the right kind of structures, the right kind of predictability. But it just turns out that life doesn't work that way. Life isn't that predictable. And here's the reason why. Not just because God is a living water, but because life just requires us to be around other people. And other people are just not as predictable and neat and tidy as we would like them to be. Every time our lives get involved with the lives of other people. As the people of God, what should well up in us, the responsibility that we're called to carry is the responsibility of hospitality. It's the responsibility of, of openness, again, of unqualified welcome. Our New Testament text for today, Hebrews 13, it gives us this final exhortation. It says, let brotherly love continue. Hospitality, welcomeness, openness. It's not about affection. It's not about feeling. It's not always those warm fuzzies that we get. 
Brotherly love is about a commitment to one another that runs deeper than our feelings, a connection that's deeper than even our mutual understanding and our mutual agreements. It says, don't neglect to show hospitality. And it says, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as their guests. Listen, that sounds wonderful. That's a terrible reason to be hospitable to people. We ought to be hospitable, not because they might be angels, but because they are human beings, because they are flesh and blood. And because they are human beings, they are a child of God. Hebrews 13 says, remember the prisoners as though you yourself were imprisoned. Remember the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For Christ himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can boldly say, the text says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can human beings do to me? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hospitality, openness, unqualified welcome, these things can be scary. Because we don't choose, we don't get to pick who walks through that door. We don't get to choose who we call brother, who we call sister, who we call our siblings. We don't get to choose that. But we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega, the first and their last. All find their life in Christ. Which is to say all of our life, all of our days are found in Christ. So we don't have to be afraid. If we are first, we are in Christ. If we are last, we are in Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Amen.